So we're going to start with something that we always do uh, as part of our service, but it's, a, it's, it's at a different place. Normally we have a period of silent reflection after the sermon. Um, we're going to start with that. So it's just heads up, a uh, little bit different. Um, and specifically, I'd like to encourage you to just reflect on, think, think, and talk to God about uh, your commitments. What are you committed to? So let's, let's just start uh, by doing that for a few minutes. God, we all have different commitments, uh, and sometimes they they weigh on us and they drain us. Uh, yeah, we need your help to fulfill commitments. Um, but God, um, we just want to thank you and take some time to thank you that you are committed to us. Um, and so spend some time now just thanking God and, and reflecting on his great commitment to you. He's the one who keeps your heart beating. He's the one who's given you any and every good thing that you've ever had in life. He's the one who gave himself up on the cross, he became a man, lived a perfect life, gave himself up for you. So thank God for his commitment. God, we don't just practice silence uh, because it's a good thing and it helps us steady ourselves, but we want to be silent so that we can hear your voice. And we believe that you're alive and that you're active and speaking today. So would you please speak to us? Heavenly Father, we pray you'd speak through your word. Because Jesus, we need to hear from you to know how to live. And Holy Spirit, we want to hear and we want to obey because we want to know you. Amen.
So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it to Nehemiah chapter 10. Um, the words will be on the screen. Uh, this is not a, an easy chapter to, I think, go through, but uh, I think it's loaded with really, really good stuff. So as you're opening to Nehemiah 10, um, I want to give an overview of the book. So uh, imagine, I want to start by just painting a picture and I painted this picture when we started Nehemiah, but that was back in January. So uh, imagine that you lived in a house that just had all sorts of problems, including the front door being off of its hinges. The front door was just kind of leaning up next to the wall. The windows were broken out. Um, everything was just in great disarray. And uh, you were surrounded by neighbors who did not want you to be in that neighborhood. Okay? The, the neighbors did not like you. So you didn't sleep very well at night because you had no protection. Your house didn't really function as a protection. And the neighbors around you, you know, were conspiring <laughs> against you. You knew it. They were threatening you. Um, that's kind of the picture of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem and its walls. And the, the walls were the protection of Jerusalem and, and the people. And they were broken down. And Nehemiah was not in the city of Jerusalem, he heard about this disarray. He heard about this destruction that had happened when he was still in the Persian capital serving the king as a cupbearer. And uh, he heard that, of course, the people in Jerusalem, their hearts were just filled with despair. Uh, and, and Nehemiah was broken over that news. And so in his brokenness, he wept, he fasted, he, he, he abstained from food, and he prayed, God would you show yourself to be faithful to your people again? Even though I know we don't deserve it, even though we've brought this destruction on ourselves from our disobedience, God, would you act on behalf of your people? And, and, and God did. God answered his prayer, gave him all the supplies that he needed, and even gave him like a, a, a leave of absence from his job in the Persian capital so that for 12 years he could go and restore the brokenness that existed within Jerusalem. Uh, on the king's orders, uh, with the king's money, he, he had all these supplies and he had safe travel to go back to Jerusalem. And, and the people heard this and they were all encouraged and they said, hey, we're going to rebuild this wall. We're going to do this together. And they started rebuilding and each of them uh, played their role uh, and they were working together. And then opposition came from these surrounding nations, fr from the neighbors, if you will, that didn't want this house restored, that didn't want uh, God's people to dwell in safety. Opposition came from without, opposition came from within, and in the midst of this opposition, they finished the wall. The, God's people finished the wall in 52 days, and, and Nehemiah didn't quit then. He, 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 he turned his gaze towards restoring this broken covenant, this broken relationship between God and his people and so they were starting to make progress. They were starting to hear from God uh, through his word and, and doing what they heard. And last week, uh, Glenn came and, and, and talked to us about the, a great confession that the people made. They basically said, God, we know that we and those before us have been unfaithful, but God, you've always been faithful to us. And so that leads us up to our, that brings us to our passage today, uh, Nehemiah chapter 10. And uh, I'm, I'm going to highlight, I'm gonna, as we read, I'm going to try to highlight what's happening uh, beginning in verse 38 of chapter 9. It's, 
It's after they've recited all of this history of what's happened, how God's been faithful and the people haven't throughout, throughout the ages. And they're saying, now because of your faithfulness, God, and our unfaithfulness, today we're going to make an agreement in writing. This is verse 38. And on this agreement, the sealed documents, are the names of our leaders, our Levites and our priests. So I just, I'm going to highlight things as I read today just so we can kind of pick out the big underlying principles that we need to see. So here's the first highlight. The leaders are all named in this agreement. And this agreement was them saying, God, we want to be faithful now. We want to live committed to you and to your ways. So in chapter 10, it says, Now on the sealed document were the names of Nehemiah the governor, who was the son of Hekeliah, and Zedekiah, and Sariah, and all these other leaders. And all these other leaders. And, and as you see at the bottom line, it says the leaders of the people. Some of them were Levites and priests who served in the, the worship of, of God, but some of them were just leaders of the people like Parash and all these other leaders. <laughs> so lots of leaders and all of their names written down in this agreement in writing that they were making. So let's go to the next slide. Now we're in verse 28. And I want you to notice this. This is another highlight of this section. Now the rest of the people... And it says the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who'd separated themselves, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all the rest of the people. That's the point. All the rest of the people are joining, verse 29, are joining with their kinsmen, their nobles, and are taking on themselves a curse and an oath. Like if we don't do this, we're cursed. Like we've been cursed in the, in the past. And an oath to walk in God's law, which was given through Moses. God's servant, and to keep and observe all the commandments of, the, of God our Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. So again, let's, let's not get caught up in the details. Everybody, the leaders and everybody are committing to what? Obey. <laughs> to obey what God has said. That's the bottom line. That's, that's simply what they're saying. And then Beginning in verse 30 through the rest of the chapter, they're making very specific applications of obedience in general. Now it's like, well, here's what obedience looks like. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. We're not going to let their pagan culture influence our hearts and our worship. And then verse 31, as for the peoples of the land who bring merchandise or wares or any grain to Sabbath to sell or on the Sabbath day to sell, we're not going to buy from them on the Sabbath day or any other holy day. We're going to forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. All of this is based out of Moses's writing in the Pentateuch when God gave his people laws to live by. So they're saying we're going to do what God said we should do. <laughs> We're not going to buy stuff on the Sabbath. We're going we're gonna to keep the Sabbath holy like God told us we should do. And then in verse 34 through the end, it's about, it's about giving. It's about supplying the needs of God's people. So verse 34 says, likewise, or wait, I'm sorry, I skipped. Verse 32, that's where we are now. Verse 32 says, we placed on our, 
we placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. So, so this is about giving. And they're saying, uh, they're saying rather than what God's law says, which is once every census, we give this certain tax to the temple, we're going to do it every year. So they're, they're, they're saying we want to obey God's law and we want to we take it a step up and do it more consistently. We're putting that on ourselves. And then in verse 34 through the end, it's more giving, it's more supplying. Likewise, we cast lots for the supply of wood among priests, the Levites and the people, so that they could bring it to the house of our God according to our father's households at fixed times annually to burn on the altar as it's written in the law and that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually and to bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and our cattle. And it just goes on and on and on about giving and supplying the needs for the people who are leading God's people into worship. And then it ends, here's a highlight, verse 39. It ends with this. Thus, in all of this, we won't neglect the house of our God. So this is one of those passages that if you're just reading through the Bible, I'll be the first to tell you, it's really boring, right? Are you a little bit bored? Yeah, your smiles tell the truth. (laughs) This passage is loaded with powerful, practical application. And it took me a long time to see it, frankly. (laughs) But it's loaded. So we're not going to get caught in the trees of the forest. We're going to see the whole forest for what it is. And, and it's tempting to look at all this. And, and, and like Glenn said last week, at the end of this book, do the people keep their commitments? Nah, they don't. So it's tempting to even read all this and say, but I know what's going to happen. You know, they're not going to carry it through. But I think there are some nuggets. There are some timeless truths that applied to them then, that still apply to us now, when it comes to living lives of commitment, because God has still called his people to live lives of absolute commitment, absolute surrender to him. So this passage is about, here, here's, our, here's our principle, here's our forest that we're going to look at, committing together under leadership. That's how they committed. And I also want us to look at another point, which is what they committed to. But we're going to spend most of our time looking at how they committed. So let's start with that. How did they commit? Well, the, the first thing that we should look at is they did commit together. Remember, I, I, I tried to highlight it was all the leaders, right? All those names, they were leaders of the people. But it was also all the rest of the people. It wasn't just the leaders. It wasn't just the people. It was all of them committing together. And five times in that passage, as, you, as we read through their commitments, they said, we will do this. We won't do this. We will do this. We will do this. It, five times we heard, we will. Because this brokenness that they were trying to restore was not something that was just on Nehemiah or just on Zedekiah or all those other names. It was on all of them. It was to be done 
together. Everyone was to play their part. And even though we read it and it's easy to get bored because a lot's changed and we're just not connected, we don't feel an emotional connection, this hasn't changed. God's people are still called to commit to relationship with God together. Lone Ranger Christians are not healthy Christians. And and this is also, this just has very practical application for us. For example, when I commit to something, like going to the Y, when I commit to that on my own, here's what it looks like for me. I will. I will. I will. I will. I will do that later. (laughs) Um... But when we commit together, like I have a friend who I go to the Y with, it's much more consistent. It looks like this. We will. That's me. We will. That's my friend. We will? Yes, we will, Ben. Okay, we will. We will, we will, we will. And then he's like, then he's silent, and I'm like, hey, we will. (laughs) Okay, we will. We will, we will. And we work together, and our commitment is more full, it's more prolonged, it's, it's, it's better. And the best organizations, I, I, I don't remember where I heard this, but I heard recently that the best organizations for personal transformation, they're, they're community-based organizations, the church and Alcoholics Anonymous, AA. That's where people have found the most help in personal transformation. And both of those, when they're healthy, they have a we will culture. Not an I will culture, but a we will. We don't do it alone. We do it together. We commit together. We support each other when we're struggling together. We will make commitments. We will fail, but we will go forward together. And so two weeks ago, a friend was sharing something with me, sharing a struggle, and I said, man, that like, just kind of sounds like Satan is lying in that. Like, that sounds like a lie from Satan. I told him that. And then less than 48 hours later, I was struggling with something. This was all in short, quick texts. I said, hey, pray for me. I'm struggling with this. And he said the same thing. Hey, that sounds like a lie from Satan. And when he said that, I just chuckled because just goes to show how fickle I am and how much I need other people to show me my blind spots and how God uses other people to keep us on track. Without the we will, we will, I'm just going to fade off into oblivion and then feel shame because I never brought it. I, I, I was never able to change the way that I wanted to. So one of the implications of this is every person really does have a role to play. Every person has a role to play if we believe in we will. Brokenness really is restored together in the kingdom of God. The other part of their how, the other part of how they committed was under leadership. I think the reason that Nehemiah lists the leaders in verses 1 to 27 is because uh, it showed the people's commitment. It said, hey, here's who is in our lives that we're following, and here's who's going to lead us into this. And of course, we are called to commit first under Christ's leadership, 
But even in the New Testament, we're encouraged to have human leaders under the authority of Jesus. And so the application is, who, who's your leader? Like, who, who can you say, I'm, I'm seeking to imitate them as they imitate Christ. I'm seeking to obey and submit to them because they're obeying and submitting to Jesus. There's all sorts of verses that support this. And, and frankly, as a, as a pastor, it's kind of odd or it feels awkward for me to point this out. And it shouldn't be me for all of you. It can't be. It can't be. There has to be a whole list in the community, just like there was in Nehemiah's day. But we just can't get around this. We have to have leaders that are committed to helping us live lives of commitment. Paul says in Philippians 3, Join with others in following my example, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Meaning, yeah, there are those following me, but I also want you to take note that there's a whole bunch of others who are living according to the pattern that we gave you. Their, their lives are worth following. So don't choose leaders hastily. <laughs> You've got to trust them. But also, if you are a leader or if you consider yourself a leader, just because you have that title doesn't mean you have someone's trust. You have to earn that. So before we go further, I, I don't want to lose anyone. I want to clarify, I think every single person in this room has leadership potential because if you're committed to following Jesus, you're following the ultimate leader. And you are becoming like him. You're becoming like the ultimate leader. A leader is just a person of influence, an agent of change. So if you've always looked at yourself as not a leader, I think God wants to challenge that today. You can be a leader. You might not ever have a leadership position, but often the most powerful people don't have titles. They just have influence. And if you are following Jesus, I mean, you have the influence of God himself. His spirit indwells you. So to, to kind of illustrate this, here's a story. Dawson Trotman, who founded the Navigator Ministry. Da Dawson Trotman is one of my heroes in the faith. But Dawson, Dawson told this story. He, he had a small group of people who were reciting memory verses together. And one of them was like a four or five-year-old girl, very, very little girl. And they were, she was reciting John 3.16. And, you know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And then she said that whosoever believes in him. And when she said whosoever, uh, it struck a chord in one of the grown men's hearts who was sitting there. And he was like, that's me. I, I'm a whosoever. Like she's talking about me. <laughs> and he gave his life to Christ. Five, six-year-old little girl led a grown man to Christ on accident, <laughs> she was an agent of change. Just by training for godliness, by reciting her verse, God used her to bring about incredible influence in a grown man's life. So following, this is, this is what I mean when I say following Jesus, it's a life of ongoing 
leadership development because we're seeking to become like the greatest leader of all time. That's not hyperbole. He seriously is the greatest leader of all time. So here's our second and final point about this passage. We, We looked at how they committed, which was together and under leadership. But I also want us to consider what they committed to. Um, They were committing to the work of God as found in the word of God. Everything that they committed to that we kind of read today and it's like, well, that's kind of boring. (laughs) Um, It was all based in God's law. Just like Nehemiah mentions, according to the law of Moses, um, the law that God gave Moses. And so specifically, here's the three kind of broad principles that they were committing to. Purity, Sabbath, and giving. And, and it's, it's tempting to want, every time we read the Bible, that we want what we read to, to directly and immediately apply to our lives now. But when we read the Old Testament, we, we, it, it's kind of tricky because we can't really do that because we, we don't live in the Old Covenant so, so are we called to purity? Yes. Are we called to Sabbath? Y- yes, with nuance. And are we called to give? Yes. But also, all of these things are with nuance because we don't live in the old covenant. Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant and he's given us a new covenant, a new definition of relationship with God. And it's actually, the new covenant is more difficult to obey. The old covenant said, uh, love your neighbors. And the new covenant says, love your neighbors and and love those who persecute you. Love your enemies. So which is harder? (laughs) It's the new covenant. But which do we have power to obey? The old covenant, it was just, hey, uh, on you individually and on y'all's will obey. The new covenant, we have the power of God himself. His spirit indwells us and gives us power to obey. Not perfectly, but we actually have what it takes because we have who it takes now. So I guess I just want to say what they committed to is what we are to commit to, which is the work of God according to the word of God. But I just want you to know when you read the Old Testament, don't directly apply it to your life. (laughs) When you read the New Testament, for the... You can directly apply it to your life because that's the new covenant. And so what they committed to is what we are invited to commit to. God's work as found in God's word. And God's work is not just church leaders and missionaries. God's work includes stay-at-home moms, businessmen, law enforcement, government, medical, educational, every moral job under the sun. You can be part of what God's doing. I believe God's inviting you to be part of what he's doing. And it's not about knowing God's word. It's about doing it wherever he's placed you. And you can say, yeah, Ben, okay, I see those principles, uh, but they didn't keep doing it. (laughs) All these commitments that they made, they ultimately stopped at some point. So why does it all matter? Does it matter? 
And that's a good question because if you pursue relationship with God, you're going to reach the point where you made commitments that you didn't keep to. So what do you do when you fail your commitments? Even when the we will, we will stops. Here's what not to do. Do not act or believe that God isn't committed to you because you failed your commitment. See, in the, in the New Covenant, the top name of that list of leaders is Jesus. And he has never, and he will never fail you. So the we will is not just one man to another, but it's one God-man to the rest of mankind. So the we will never stops because his commitment to you never stops. When I was growing up, I made a commitment to follow Jesus at age five. And then again about a thousand times because I thought if I didn't live up to my end of the bargain, I, I thought this, I felt this, and I couldn't put my finger on it. I was young, but I thought maybe God's not going to live up to his. But it's not your commitment. It's not my commitment to God that makes you secure. It's God's commitment to you. And so when we fail, what do we do? We remember his commitment to us and we let that move us to change. It's his commitment to us that makes us respond back by saying, yes, I want to commit again to you. Your position with God is perfect if you're, if you're a Christian. You're innocent. Nothing can change your position with God. Your practice, my practice with God is not perfect. The Christian life looks like this. <laughs> it's a big yes. Yes, Jesus, I will follow you with all of my life. Then there's a whole bunch of no's in there. That's disobedience. That's sin. That's covered by the blood of Jesus. But So, so what are we living for? Well, we're living for Jesus. We're, it's relationship with him. It's, it's not about our perfection. It's about our direction. The Christian life is... It's about Jesus' perfection and our direction becoming more in line with his. Nobody responds perfectly every single time. The Christian's life is one of direction, not perfection. So if you're here today and you're like, yeah, I've never said that big yes, it's really simple, but it's really profound. If you say, if you say and, and you really want God to change your life, he can and he will, but it's not going to be like all your problems are gone away or that you'll never fail again. It's that he's your new leader. He's going to set this direction. So ask him, here, here's all you have to do. Ask him to be your Lord, which is another name for leader. He's, he's the supreme leader and ask him to be your savior, which is the one who forgives all your no's, all your sin, all your mistakes, all your failure. Ask him to be your king. And he will. And he'll never leave you. That's his 
ongoing, forever commitment. His we will will not stop. Even when you're silent for a long time. And one of the things that God did in my own life when I struggled with insecurity was he brought leaders into my life, imperfect men, but he used those leaders to change me. We committed together under Jesus' leadership, but I was under their leadership. Didn't feel like leadership. It wasn't authoritarian. It was friendly. It was kind. It was loving. And together we made commitments and encouraged each other when we fell short. And, and our lives changed. My life continues to change because of them. So all this to say is commitment is essential for growth. <laughs> commitment is essential for knowing God in the first place. But when God looks at your commitment, if you're a child of God, if you've said yes to him as Lord and Savior, this is how he looks at your, your falling. It's like when a child is learning to walk or to talk. Does the parent get upset every time the child falls? Every time the child doesn't enunciate? Of course not. They're committed to the child. They don't blow up at them. They cultivate the child's commitment, the child's growth. God looks at us the same way. When we, when we make him sad, and we do make him sad when we mess up, but he says, stand up, let's go again. This is training. Nothing can change your relationship with me. You're always going to be mine. And it's our choice if we stand up again or not. It's our choice. God is all for your growth. And the way that we keep standing up, <laughs> even when we commit and fail, commit and fail, commit and fail, is we focus on the commitment, the unchanging commitment that God has for you. And that is most clearly seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus was not killed in a way that was out of his control. He freely gave himself up. This is an expression, this is the ultimate expression of God's loving commitment for you. And God didn't leave you with a dead Savior, but a risen one. 